Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thee thanks for the season of Advent and for the coming of thy Savior, our Messiah. We ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear and receive thy Holy Scripture, to be set on fire by it, and to reform our lives. And now by the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts, be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I call this Nine Lessons, No Carols, Stringing Pearls. Um, I can't resist the service of Nine Lessons and Carols that plays on WBHM on the morning of Christmas Eve. It's broadcast live from King's College, Cambridge, King's Chapel, uh, Lessons and Carols. The handout that you have are the readings that are done at King's College. And I invite you to listen to it. It's really moving. It's really beautifully done. And it's live. I don't remember exactly what time it comes on, but it's on NPR, 90.3. 9 a.m. Okay, right. Well, um, 90.3 WBHM. Uh, sometimes I think, and I've said the reason we call this Nine Lessons, No Carols, not only because I don't sing very well, but because I've always thought that the carols can possibly get in the way of the readings. Uh, even the good carols, especially the good carols, they tend to be so beautiful that sometimes we get lost and carried away. I don't know about y'all, but two weeks ago when we did Lessons and Carols at 11, the uh, w one of the pieces that was done, um, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming, was so moving that I almost didn't hear the, re the reading that came after it. Um, if we take away the carols, we can focus more clearly on the readings, which I think when strung together um, give us a clear picture of all of Holy Scripture, really, our rebellion and God's response to our rebellion. So if we could have volunteers for all of the readings, what we'll do is I will, I will introduce each of the readings, the volunteer reader will read it, and then we'll move on and we'll do all, all nine of them sequentially and then talk about them. Um, the first lesson comes from Genesis. Everybody knows it. It's the one in the Garden of Eden. Could we have a volunteer for that? Coffee's going to read Genesis, okay? The reason I got to leave at about 20 till I'm doing a challenge at 11 for a challenge. Good deal. Second lesson also comes from Genesis, a shorter one, Abraham and Isaac. Who wants to do that? Margie? Okay, great. I'm writing them down just so I remember. The third lesson, one of my favorite from the prophet Isaiah, um, the people who walked in darkness. All right. And the fourth lesson, uh, also from Isaiah. Do we have? Okay, all right. Uh, fifth lesson, Angel Gabriel. Uh, from Luke. Who wants to do that one? I'll do it. All right, John will do that one. Sixth lesson, also from Luke. This is the Linus reading. All right, Mary. And uh, the seventh lesson, from also from Luke. Uh, that's, this is actually the Linus lesson. Who wants to read that one? You can read twice, of course. Mike, you want to do that? All right, Mike. 
And the eighth lesson from Matthew. All right. And the ninth lesson, one of my favorite from uh, the prologue to John's Gospel. Who wants to do that? All right, Steve will do that one. Okay. So we've got our lineup. Again, I will, I will do the intro to it, and then each of you take it away. The first lesson, God tells sinful Adam that he has lost the life of paradise and that his seed will bruise the serpent's head. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid, because I was naked and hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast in the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of, all, eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shall eat thy bread. Thou shalt eat bread, <clears throat> thou, till thou return to the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. The second lesson, God promises to faithful Abraham that in his seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. A reading from the book of Genesis. The third lesson, the prophet foretells the coming of the Savior, a reading from the book of Isaiah. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever 
Lord of hosts will perform them. The fourth lesson, the peace that Christ will bring is foreshown. A reading from the book of Isaiah. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness shall he judge the poor, and remove with equity for the meek of the earth. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion, and the, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all thy holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fifth lesson, the angel Gabriel salutes the Blessed Virgin Mary, a reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke. And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come unto thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And Mary said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. The sixth lesson, St. Luke tells of the birth of Jesus, a reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one in his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The seventh lesson, the shepherds go to the manger, a reading from the gospel according to St. Luke. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. The Eighth Lesson The wise men are led by the star to Jesus. A reading from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And thou Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that, that shall rule thy people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they, had, which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. The ninth lesson, St. John unfolds the great mystery of the Incarnation, a reading from the Gospel according to St. John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his home own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believeth on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, Full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
The old rabbis had an expression, they referred to stringing pearls. And by stringing pearls, they meant that if you take various pieces of scripture and line them up together, they can illustrate a large theological point. It's really the same, the, the same thing that our lectionary does on a given Sunday when the Old Testament reading and the psalm and the epistle and the gospel all sort of contribute to one another and they give the, the preacher the talking points, if you will, the theological points on which to hang a sermon. Well, we see these pearls being strung when we read the lessons all together. We see the, the rebellion and the fall of humanity and the natural consequences of that fall in the earth. And then we see the beginning of God's covenant to bring humanity back to him through the promise that he makes to Abraham. And then we see the coming of the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament prophets and the way the prophets foresee a coming back together of God and his people in a way that will restore something of the pre-Eden character of the relationship. And then we see the announcement to Mary and we see the birth and the announcement of the birth to all of the world, both through the, through the angels, to the shepherds, and to the wise men who follow the star. And then we see St. John with the great eagle's eye view of all of theology, being able to put it into that magnificently succinct preamble to his, his prologue to his gospel. So I'd like to propose that there are six pearls that come from all of these readings and talk about them one by one and get your thoughts about them. Pearl number one, it was humanity that broke the relationship that God created, but immediately God had a response to that break. The first lesson posits a creation that was perfect before man and woman ate the fruit of the tree. And then it was changed forever. And you note in the, in the reading how there's this blame shifting. You know, the, 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 the man says, the woman that thou gave me. And the woman says, the serpent beguiled me. And it reminds all of us parents the way uh, rebellious children act, uh, finger-pointing and deflecting blame. And hiding. and hiding, exactly, the guilt. The man and the woman are hiding from God when he's walking in the cool of the garden. And, and it, it's, it's interesting how the relationship, God was walking in the cool of the garden. You can imagine their fellowship beforehand that now is no more. Um, they're ashamed. They, uh, they hide out. They blame other people. Notice how God punishes the serpent. He says that there will be enmity between the descendants of, these, of the man and the woman and his descendants, which I read to mean that there will forever be this conflict between God's people and the evil in the world until... God completes the restoration of the relationship. But the most important part of this reading, this first reading in Genesis that Coffee read, I think is, is the one that's the, the most opaque. 
it's that line about um, where he tells the where the uh, God tells the serpent that he will bruise it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Um, this is the first glimpse of the gospel in Holy Scripture, and it happens right there in the fall in the garden. The old scholars had a Latin term for it. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, or the embryonic gospel. The embryonic gospel says that, that um, God is promising that he will, his solution uh, will be bruised by Satan, but that, but that Satan's head will be bruised. That is, the heel and the head, clearly the greater harm will be done by Satan, uh, be done to Satan by what God will do. And it's opaque in Genesis, but it works its way out. If any of you saw the movie, The, the, um, the Passion of the Christ, the very beginning scene in Gethsemane acts this out in a very vivid, um, very theologically I think, accurate way. Uh, Christ is praying in the garden and he's sweating these drops of blood and then we see a serpent crawl into the garden of Gethsemane into, uh, between, his, uh, between his knees and Satan is there and Satan is tempting Christ in the garden, telling him it's too much, you can't do it. And at the end, he steps on the head, he stomps on the head of the serpent which is this proto-evangelium acted out. Think about it. Two gardens, two temptations, and two very different outcomes from Eden to Gethsemane and the, the, the fulfillment of this proto-evangelium, this first glimpse of the gospel. Second pearl, God's response to our rebellion will be a human gift. In the second lesson, God promises Abraham that through Isaac, his descendants will outnumber the stars or be like the, the sands on the seashore. Um, we understand that to mean that all of us, all of believers in all of the world, are the theological descendants of Abraham. But notice how many of these, uh, of these readings uh, make reference to this human gift who will come as a little child. I mean, it's in the two Isaiah readings are both refer to a little child. A little child shall lead them. Um, uh, in the two Luke readings, two of the Luke readings, it's all about a little child. And that's so counterintuitive. We talk about this often, how God's solution to our dilemma is often the exact opposite of what we expect the solution is going to be. You know, the the ancient Israelites were hardwired to accept their Messiah coming, expect him to come on a white horse with a sword in his hand. And that's kind of the, the human understanding of how God will come. Well, how unlike that human picture is the Messiah coming as a little child in a, the, the, the most inelegant of circumstances, in a manger, in a cave dug out of the rock, in this tiny little hamlet, in a backwater to the Roman Empire, unnoticed by almost everybody in the world. This is God's response in a way that we do not expect it. 
I think what's really important about this second pearl is the preamble uh, uh, the, in God's promise to Abraham. When the angel speaks to Abraham and he says, because thou hast done this thing, this thing, what had Abraham done? He had been obedient. He had been prepared, and we talked about this last week actually in response to one of Frank Jones's questions and comments. He had been prepared to sacrifice his son. Now, God spared him that sacrifice. He held back his hand at the last moment. Uh, but he said, because thou hast done this thing, and uh, this thing um, reminds us of what God did and what Paul drove home in Romans chapter 8 where he said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You see, God did not require that of Abraham. God did it himself. And uh, notice also that because thou hast done this thing sort of parallels what God has said to Satan, you know, in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden. Because thou hast done this, that this is the punishment that you will get. And it almost says the same thing to the man and the woman, because you have rebelled. But instead, he says to Abraham, because you have done this, because you have been obedient, that, um, that your descendants will be uh, like the stars and your son will be the one that begins this, uh, this coming back to God with humanity. The, um, the word um, that in the ninth reading... Uh, the Gospel of John refers to Christ as the only begotten of the Father. Now, only begotten is a literal translation of the Latin term in the Vulgate Bible, St. Jerome's uh, word, and it is um, uh, unigenitus, only begotten, is the literal translation. But the Greek word in the original Greek was monogenes, and monogenes is a more complex term than just only begotten. It implies um, something like uniqueness. And that is, of course, what Christ was, unique. Um, the only son of Abraham referred to in the reading is not his only literal genealogical son, but he is the only son through which this covenant is going to be acted out. The descendants of Abraham, the believers, are the descendants of Isaac too. And it is interesting to me that the same terminology, the same image is used, thine only son, at the beginning of the acting out of the fulfillment of the covenant, Isaac, and at the fulfillment of the covenant, Jesus, both of whom were the only begotten, the unigenitus, the monogenes. The third pearl, the human gift that is God's solution will change us forever and it will restore the relationship that we broke. Some philosophers claim that history is circular. Karl Marx very famously said that history repeats itself first as tragedy and second as farce. And I suppose in the human term that there's a lot of truth to that because kingdoms 
rise and they wane, and empires rise up and they fall down and disappear. That's the, the, um, that's the lesson of Keats' um, um, poem Ozymandias. But there is one specific case theologically where history is not circular. Um, scripture makes clear that in this one, in, in the theological, in the God sense, that um, actually history is linear. One time, God broke in on human history, and he changed it forever. And there are two of these readings that drive the point home, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. In the third reading, in Isaiah, the prophet writes, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, even forever. I mean, his point is that this kingdom shall not rise and wane. This empire shall never fall like Ozymandias. Same thing in the, in the um, fifth lesson uh, where the angel Gabriel in Luke comes to Mary. He says, He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. In this case, theological history is definitely linear. There's nothing circular about it. One time, God broke in on humanity and established a new relationship that will never, never end. The change is, is dramatically illustrated in the fourth lesson, the, the reading that from um, Isaiah that is... Um, that is almost apocalyptic. It, it describing the way these animals, the, the the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the and the um, uh, the small child shall put his hand on the on the hole of the poisonous serpent, the asp, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the cockatrice, the cockatrice den. That's a cockatrice was an ancient idea of a flying serpent. Uh, you can see them in medieval illustrations. And it's believed that some of the early observations of the way a serpent will strike, a poisonous serpent, he almost seems to be flying. But we don't understand that Isaiah is being literal here. We don't let our children play with, um, uh, with, with lions and tigers at the zoo. We, we send them to the petting zoo instead. Rather, he is being metaphorical in the same sense that, um, that the book of Daniel is using um, uh, in the dreams that Daniel interprets, using uh, uh, creatures to illustrate uh, kingdoms on earth. And what he is describing is a new relationship between God and this fallen world that we inhabit. And that is that beautiful thing at the end of the fourth lesson where the, the prophet writes, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. A new order will come, a new fundamental relationship, and a little child shall lead them back to the relationship that we had with God before the fall. The fourth pearl the gift will come through Israel, but it will be a gift for the entire world. Notice that when God made the promise to Abraham through the angel in the second reading, he said that 
that that the um, that the descendants of Abraham would bless all the nations. And when the angel announced to uh, the shepherds in the um, in what I call the Linus reading, the one that Mike did, the, the the angel said to the shepherds that the good tidings of great joy shall be to all people, not just to Israel, but to all of the world. But it comes through Israel. I think that we learn from Scripture that Judaism and Christianity are inextricably linked. That is, without the law, without what the Old Testament teaches us about the, the perfection of the law and the imperfection of humanity, we could never need a Savior. We could never have a Messiah. But without the context of the law and the prophets, we cannot understand what the Messiah means. So this Christianity and Judaism thing, it's, it, it's inextricable. When John the Baptist came, and it was spoken of in, in, in the last reading, John the Baptist came to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, and he did it by preaching from the law and the prophets. And in each of the four Gospels, John is saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the path because the king is coming, and that comes right out of the prophet Isaiah. So we understand that the gift will come through Israel, but be for the whole world. The, the reading from Matthew of the wise men, these magi that Steve talked about, so uh, uh, preached on, taught on so well last week, they weren't even Jews. Uh, they, were, they were the followers of another faith, unrelated at all to Judaism, and yet they understood what was significant, what was happening. They came asking about the king of the Jews. Now, the Old Testament is full of stories of outsiders, non-Jews who came into the covenant of Israel through some special understanding of God's special relationship with Israel. There was Rahab, in the, 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 the woman in Jericho in the book of Joshua. We have Ruth in the book of Ruth, who was from the land of Moab, not Jews. We had Naaman, the, um, the Syrian general, who was told to wash in the Jordan River. Another beautiful example of proto-evangelium, an embryonic gospel. We have all of these foreigners who recognize the uh, special relationship that the Jews had with, with God. And I believe that these magi fit into that same category. Notice the gifts that they bring, which we talked about last week. Gold, which indicates a gift for a king. Frankincense, a gift for a priest. And myrrh, a gift for one who is going to be a sacrifice, who's going to be, who's going to be killed. I mean, those three are illustrative of the gospel. He will be a king, he will be a priest, and he will be the redeemer through his sacrifice. And nothing more completely, I think, illustrates the universality of the gospel in Christmas than that it's the magi who give these gifts and proclaim this gospel truth about the Messiah. The fifth, next to last pearl, is that this gift will be God himself and yet will be one of us. This is one of the most, the most difficult 
ideas for us to wrap our mind around. It is the seed of so many early church heresies. It took hundreds of years to work out the proper theological truth. Luther points out that in the Gospel of John, the beginning of the Gospel that we read in the ninth reading, that John said that this Word was with God and the Word was God and that without Him was not anything made that was made. What he's saying, Luther says, is that John is making clear that this Christ, this Logos, this Word, was God Himself. If he was in the beginning with God before all of creation, then logically that tells us that he had to be God. Now, a lay theologian at, um, at the Fixed Point Foundation once asked me a really intriguing question. He asked me, do you ever wonder why all of light is external? That we might have been created to glow like the faces of watches, but we weren't. We don't. We can't light our own paths. The light has to come from somewhere outside of us. He said, why do you suppose that is? And his theological point was that, as Scripture shows us, all light comes only from God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the first thing that he did was to say, let there be light. He created light. And in um, in John's prologue, he sort of summarizes that creation story by saying he was the true light that, light is, that lights everyone who ever comes into the world. He is the source of that light. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't overcome it. That's what we understand comprehended it not to mean it did not overcome the darkness. We walk in darkness, but as the prophet Isaiah wrote, we have seen a great light. And that's the true light which is coming into the world with Christ. The metaphor, the light and the dark metaphor is clear. That light is righteousness. And the source of all righteousness is God. And it was the source of righteousness, this Logos, that came into the world to overcome the sin that was in the world. Steve has shared with me some readings he's been doing during Advent from St. Augustine, Augustine of, of Hippo. And one of them is really, really difficult, but we've been chewing on it for several weeks. And what it boils down to is Augustine said that God is perfect and divine and we are rebellious and corrupt. So he became a perfect example of our humanity. He took our humanity onto himself in order to give some of his divinity to us. That divinity is eternal life. Not only did God become human, but he dwelt among us, as, as John wrote. He, um, he, in the words of Joe Gibbs, he condescended to come down to us, if you read that in The Adventurer a few weeks ago. Not only that, the, um, the dwelt among us, according to something that I've read, the Greek word literally means pitched his tent. He dwelt among us by pitching his tent, and that was the same Greek word that in the Exodus, in the Greek version of the Old Testament scriptures, was used to describe the way Yahweh dwelt in the tabernacle as the Israelites traveled through the wilderness. So what a beautiful thought. He came and he pitched his tent 
among us. Now with the bells ringing, let me quickly get to the last of the, of the pearls. By receiving this gift that God gives us, the relationship is restored and we become his children. The last words of the ninth lesson are full of grace and truth. That's the end of that reading from John, but that's not the end of John's prologue. It's not included in the lesson. I think it ought to be, frankly. But John spells that out in the passage. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, law and grace and truth are the triumvirate of what the gospel is all about. You've heard it from the, from the pulpit a million times at the Advent. Law sets the standard that proves to us how sinful that we are. Truth convicts us of that sinfulness. And grace treats us as righteous even though we are sinful. That's exactly what Christ meant about fulfilling the law. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. We are born of flesh, but we are reborn as sons of God. Born of the flesh means we're born into sin. But we're reborn not by our own will, but by the will of God, by the grace of God. That's what John's prologue says. And I think re being reborn means something like going back to that time in Eden before the fall when, the, when God could walk in the cool of the garden and his creation, his people could share that fellowship with him. We Episcopalians could think of it as sharing cocktails on the deck in the cool of the evening, right? We're Episcopalians, right? Cocktails on the deck with our Creator. What a more beautiful um, Episcopal understanding of the gospel could that be? The Old Testament refers to the coming of the Messiah as Emmanuel, the Hebrew word meaning God with us. The Word made flesh, the Logos, the mind of God, pitched His tent. He condescended to come to us, and He changed us and all of creation forever. And every Christmas for that action, we can say, thanks be to God. And Merry Christmas to all of you, and I hope to see you at one of the many Christmas services and see you again in two weeks at Epiphany. Amen. Amen. Thank you.